Hi, my name is Dr. Logan Levkoff. I am a sexologist and sexuality educator. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. I've actually been a sexuality educator since the age of 16 when I came home after school one day and there were condoms and bananas on our dinner table and my parents said, this is how you use a condom and next week you start peer training to be an HIV and AIDS educator. I did that through North Shore University Hospital, which started one of our town's greatest assets, a peer HIV and AIDS education program. I think it's important before we begin to talk about my philosophy on sexuality education. I believe that sexuality is this wonderful part of our lives, and we have a responsibility to speak with factual correctness, to be inclusive of all types of diversity, that we challenge double standards and assumptions about gender and how we express it, and we constantly emphasize the importance of voice, the ownership of body, focusing on consent, and that we teach critical thinking skills. As medical providers, the one thing you should know, if you don't already, is that parents come looking to you for advice and guidance. They are consumed with the idea that they are going to mess up their kids in some way. They don't always have all of the facts, and they are very much focused on keeping certain behavior behaviors private, whatever that means to them. So the first thing to recognize is that every community we work with, even if it's young people, it is more diverse than we think. We tend to make assumptions based on how someone looks or how their family presents themselves, and the likelihood is we don't have the whole picture, which is why in my introduction to you, I told you what my pronouns are, because it is really the new template for moving forward, that every time we meet someone, every time we meet with a patient or their family, Asking for pronouns validates who our patients and our young people are as individuals. So let's get out of our comfort zone and really forget everything that we learned before. And I say that half joking, half seriously. And the first thing I would start with is the idea that there is something called age appropriateness. It is really an inaccurate term and winds up paralyzing us and prevents us from telling young people good, solid, correct information. The reality is that there are some young people who are absolutely capable of hearing and understanding sophisticated information about sex, and there are plenty of adults incapable of doing so. The idea that we have this term age appropriateness really complicates things because we fear giving information because we think there is one age and one stage in life in which we are supposed to unload all of it, and it's just not true. When I talk about sexual health, and this will lead us into conversations about terms that are evolving in sexuality as well as understanding child and adolescent sexuality, is I like to think of the term sexual health as being something that's holistic, that isn't simply about safer sex. So this model is half internal internal and individually maintained and then there are some pillars that are harder to control so we can take care of our physical health our emotional health our intellectual health what we know and then of course there are the things that are a little less easy to control like the context of our relationships culture and pop culture and politics all things that impact our ability to be sexually healthy but that we may not actually have direct control over i'm a big proponent of understanding language, and more importantly, making language more expansive. And sex, 
sexuality and sexual are just not synonyms. So we're going to walk through what all of those mean. When we talk about sexuality, we are talking about the big picture. We are talking about our assigned sex at birth, our gender identity, our gender expression, our sexual orientation, our body image, our relationships, our feelings, desires, and yes, our sexuality may eventually include expression of certain sexual behaviors. But when we start to see it as a, as a broader model, we start to understand that at every stage in our life, even as very young people, we have a sexuality and we have it from birth to death. Of course, there are lots of factors that impact our sexuality and our understanding of ourselves, and that is media representation or lack thereof, our education, religion and spirituality, our culture, family upbringing, perceptions of partners or friends, and then certainly perceptions of self. The gender-bred person is a model that was created by Sam Killerman as an effort to explain how really broad the idea of gender is, and it's far more than simply what's between your legs or what your reproductive system is. So the gender-bred person was designed to, to show that there are different facets to who we are. Assigned sex at birth is certainly one of those. You know, do you have a penis and testicles? Do you have a vulva and vagina? Or do you have a version of both of those systems? Because even though we talk about assigned sex as being a binary, the reality is there are people who are intersex. And that category and that population is one that is often left out of most conversations, especially those with young people. Gender identity is our internal sense of our own gender. So in 2019, there are a lot of new terms that we use, cisgender, which means my assigned sex and my gender identity are the same or transgender, my assigned sex and gender identity are different. We will also hear terms like gender fluid, gender queer, non-binary, and agender. And gender isn't a binary. You know, this is why we ask people for their pronouns because there are people who use gender neutral pronouns, they and them being a common one, or z and zer. And I know oftentimes as adults we get, you know, tripped up with they and them because grammatically it sounds plural, but there are plenty of young people who use they and them pronouns and they are indeed individuals. What gender fluid means is that there is an identity that we have that shifts. There are times we feel more male, there are times that we feel more female. Agender means that you don't ascribe any particular gender to yourself. And non-binary simply means that this idea that there are two genders, that is not something that we identify with. But when we talk about children and child sexuality, it's really important that we think about how early we reinforce old gender norms. So literally, when we have parties that are gender reveals, and truth being told, they're not gender reveals, they're actually assigned sex at birth <laughs> reveals, we start tracking young people down a certain particular path, whether it's the pink and blue binary, or whether it's you know bringing home sporting equipment in cars for someone who's pregnant with an assigned male, or ballet shoes for someone who's pregnant with an assigned female, in reality, we start tracking these kids and we track them early, even before they have any understanding of who they are, who they want to be, and what colors they like. Because as we all know, there is no gender assigned to a color. 
It is impossible to talk about sexuality without talking about how expansive the labels under the umbrella of sexual orientation really are. Our young people hear more terms now than we have in the past, and it's important that we understand what all of these terms mean. And this video is a short one, but one that I think does it beautifully. It is a video from a website called amaze.org, which is a wonderful website for families, for youth, pertaining to all aspects of sex and sexuality. I never heard of this band. What kind of music do they do, rock? So what is it, pop? So they do techno, progressive Balkan with a touch of metal? Never heard of that genre. Sexual orientation describes who you are attracted to, may fall in love with, and may have a sexual relationship with. Everyone has a sexual orientation, and there are different words to describe different sexual orientations. Many people are familiar with terms like heterosexual, gay, lesbian, and bisexual. But those aren't the only sexual orientations out there. For example, some people identify as pansexual, which means they are attracted to people of all genders. Many pansexual people feel that gender has little to do with their attractions. In other words, they are attracted to a person, not to that person's gender. Some people are asexual sometimes called ace. Asexual people feel little or no sexual attraction to other people and have little or no interest in having sex or engaging in sexual behaviors. Many asexual people still feel romantic attraction. They feel love and affection but may not feel sexual attraction. Demisexual people only feel sexual attraction when they have a strong romantic or emotional connection with a person. These are just some of the labels people use to describe their sexual orientation. Some people don't like to use labels at all, and that's okay too. There are many other terms out there to describe the full, diverse spectrum of human beings, and that's a beautiful thing. Until next time, don't forget to visit me at amaze.org or go to my YouTube channel to watch more. Bye! So now that we've had that covered, let's talk about what sex is, because... The reality is that sex is more than penis and vagina intercourse. Sex is a range of deeply personal, intimate behaviors, all come with the capacity for pleasure and all come with the potential for negative outcomes if not practiced in a safe way. So, when I talk to young people about sex, I define it as vaginal, oral, and anal intercourse. And there are ethical reasons to that too. Because not every person is heterosexual, and sex is not a word that is only ascribed to people who are straight. We are all sexual beings, but being sexual doesn't mean we're deliberately and actively looking to express our sexuality, and that's why people have so much trouble talking about sexuality and young people. Before we talk about the development and typical development during childhood and adolescence, I want to remind everyone that representation really does count. So way before your patients see you, do your posters, brochures, magazines have diversity in them, diversity of family structure, race, body shape and size, ability, sexual orientation and gender expression, because it does make a tremendous impact on a patient when they see that they're represented. It means that they can trust you, and that trust goes a very long way. For the sake of 
using correct language. I want us to just remember that when we use certain terms, like the word virgin or virginity, they should be as expansive as our definitions of sex. So is it possible to be a virgin with respect to all categories of sex? Sure. And it's also important to remember that if we're talking to patients, particularly teenagers, that we don't make assumptions about who they are, what they do, and who they may do it with. Sexual response begins before birth. We've seen male fetuses with erectile response, and we've even seen fetuses with clitorises touching their vulvas. During the years zero to five, there is a great deal of sexual development. Children can experience erections and vaginal lubrications. They touch their genitals for pleasure. They can absolutely say and understand correct terms for body parts. They are curious about everything. And they have a very good sense of their own gender. And common expressions of sexuality during this early childhood period may be playing doctor, talking about or touching body parts, or asking to touch certain body parts naming body parts aloud in certain, you know, coffee shop public bathrooms. Um, they masturbate. And I want to talk a little bit about this concept of privacy and private parts. I struggle with the phrase private parts because after you work with young people for a long period of time, you start to realize that for young people, private becomes synonymous with secretive. And we don't want these parts to be secretive. We want them to be personal just for them, for, the, for ourselves, but we don't ever want to feel like these are parts that we cannot talk about. And having a universal language, a correct language using correct anatomical terms, including vulva instead of vagina, if we're not actually talking about the vagina, is really important because not just for good, positive, consensual experiences, but even if there are non-consensual behaviors or if there is injury or accident, we want to know the parts that our children are talking about. And if we just reinforce slang terms, we're really not going to get the full picture. I was shown this image by someone who is in teacher training in the Midwest, and she reached out to me because she was so upset by the fact that this company had said that age-inappropriate behavior, age-inappropriate, something that was a warning sign, was sexual language or play, including masturbation. Now, we know masturbation, sexual language, parroting, you know, what we see around us is actually not pathological at all. It's super commonplace. And, you know, the second slide here shows that a small child should not be able to detail what happens during intercourse. That is completely untrue. In fact, especially when we have younger children, if parents or caregivers are pregnant, what do they do? They ask how babies are created and we wind up telling them. So a small child could absolutely tell you what sexual intercourse is, could absolutely tell you how babies are typically made. Typically, of course, because of reproductive technology. So we swim in this culture of panic, and it actually does us all a huge disservice. Between the ages of six to eight, there is typically some same-gender uh, socialization. Young kids start to recognize that there are certain taboos around sexuality. They can absolutely understand more complex ideas including that sex and sexual intercourse may not simply be to reproduce. 
They can understand stereotypes. They may have some same-sex or same-gender sexual exploration, which does not mean anything about their sexual orientation. It simply means that early on, we typically experiment with those we feel closest to and are safe around. And if we're socializing with our own gender, that's not a huge surprise. Of course, between the ages of 9 and 12, this is the emergence of puberty and adolescent and sexual development. So they are incredibly conscious and self-conscious of their sexuality. They are consumed with the idea of whether they are normal, whether their bodies are developing at a normal rate, if they're developing too early or too late, or what's going to happen if a parent notices that they're developing they start to understand jokes with sexual content. They are incredibly anxious about when certain pubescent milestones are going to happen, and they start to value privacy highly. Now, that's not true for everyone. Some people are absolutely comfortable with nudity, and if they are and you are, fantastic. And if you're not, that's okay too. But adolescence as a whole is characterized by this need to be normal and also we keep forgetting that the hallmark of adolescence is really understanding and expressing our sexuality. And there is no one way to be normal. What is normal for me may be different to someone else. Between the ages of 13 to 18, teenagers may choose to express their sexuality in many ways that may or may not include or lead up to intercourse of any kind. They can recognize components of healthy and unhealthy relationships. They can understand outcomes and have the capacity really to learn about intimate loving relationships and have a clear understanding of their own sexual orientation. The caveat to all of this being if we give them correct information. And of course, beyond that, we like to call this time emerging adulthood. So the physical development and maturation process comes to an end. They start testing out their own decision-making skills, um, develop greater intimacy skills, and start to enter into real relationships, and have a very clear understanding of their own values, those that may be independent from their family or culture. So I ask you to think about what your own values are. And this does inform how we speak to our patients, especially young ones, about the assumptions we make about them. And if you have any particular values or things that you think are going to prevent you from speaking candidly or accurately to your young patients, it is time to put them aside. Because it is important that we are always factually correct and we don't let judgment get in the way. Because when we talk about sex and love and relationships, these things are deeply personal. We don't all come at these issues with the same set of values. So giving the facts and encouraging young people to ask their families for their own values becomes really critical during this time. But I want to talk about gender again for a brief moment. And I don't make any assumptions that medical professionals are gendered in their conversations about development with patients. But oftentimes your patients' parents are. When I think about puberty and when I teach young people, I teach everyone together. I don't split based on sex or gender, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Aside from my own atrocious fifth grade class of 30 minutes where I sat in a room with people with uteruses and, you know, <laughs> the boys in our classroom sat in, in another room, um, the reality is that the majority of changes that take place during puberty happen to everyone. We're really not so different. So this idea that we can't learn together or can't develop a dialogue in front of one another really sounds silly to me. 
And this is the time we practice communication skills for the future, regardless of who our partners may or may not be in the future. And moving into physical sexual health, which becomes a little bit clearer now as our bodies start to change. I mean, yes. Maintaining physical sexual health should be about, you know, talking about going to doctors, at some point getting tested, having baseline pelvic exams, using condoms, um, and being up to date with contraception and treatment if someone has a sexually transmitted infection. But it actually starts off far earlier than that. So, if you don't know what this is, it's a penis. <laughs> and I say that because oftentimes when your patients are learning about puberty and development, they're learning a lot about this. And that's great because the penis and the testicles and the vas deferens and prostate are all important. But there is an inherent conversation on pleasure built into talking about the male reproductive system and development. <clears throat> Whereas oftentimes, historically, as well as still in many places, if you are sitting in a classroom learning about puberty for assigned females, we spend a lot of time talking about this. Now, sure, the uterus, fallopian tubes, and ovaries are really important, but those are not the parts that people with these systems can see from the outside. And if we only talk about what's going on inside, then we're basically making young people think that if you are assigned female, your value in life is only based on your reproductive potential. And that becomes super problematic because we don't do a lot of talk about the vulva. And those are the parts that people with vulvas and vaginas can actually see from the outside. And that's when we talk about equity, because here we can talk about pleasure. We can talk about the fact that the clitoris comes from the same tissue as the penis. And we can talk about how there is erectile tissue in the clitoris, and that even though we don't see it from the outside, that female bodies, assigned female bodies, get erections too. So again, it goes back to this idea that we're really not so different, we're far more similar, so we really should be learning all together and about everyone. And of course, we often omit a discussion about what it means to be intersex and how that impacts puberty and how that may be different from person to person. Emotional sexual health does impact our physical sexual health too. So if we are not comfortable with our sexual orientation or our bodies, or if we're uncomfortable with our gender identity or expression, it impacts what we do, how we do it, and how and if we take care of ourselves. One of the things I've noticed with young people today is that they are so anxious about being awkward. They are very afraid of talking about their needs because they're awkward, having dialogues about consent, how to do it in a way that's not awkward. Awkward is not a bad word, and I really encourage all of us who work with young people to let them own the awkward. No matter how young or old you are, conversations about sex, about needs, about feelings, about protection can be awkward, but that makes the conversation even more rewarding. Again, your patients are coming to you with a whole host of images and information and misinformation and skewed information and this idea of who gets to be sexy, who is considered sexy, is there representation, um, bodies should be valued for what they can do and what they can achieve and not simply what they look like, but your patients are going to be coming to you wondering if they're normal and whether or not someone is going to find them attractive if they don't fit the stereotypical mold. 
When we talk about intellectual sexual health, we're not simply talking about the facts that we know. We're also talking about developing skills. Developing skills can be communicating about needs, talking about pleasure, talking about consent, and talking even about what type of relationship two people are going to be in. So on that note, what does a relationship even mean? You are going to talk to your patients, especially those who are adolescents, and find out if they have partners, if they have relationships, and the reality is that they might not even know what that means. And we should really be encouraging young people to think about what a healthy partnership looks like because of a healthy partnership, even a healthy friendship, if that does not exist, it again impacts physical and emotional health. I wake up every day to challenge the sexual double standard. This idea that when it comes to sex and relationships, depending on what parts you have between your legs or how you represent your gender, you're not entitled to the same things. This is a system that winds up being bad for everyone. Not only does it assume a gender binary, it assumes that everyone is heterosexual, and it means that from a young age, people of different genders are taught not to trust one another far before they've ever had any contact with each other. This is a system that says we can slut shame girls, we blame victims of sexual assault and ask them what they were wearing as if that was had anything to do with a non-consensual event. Um, it teaches girls that they can't or shouldn't demand protection or pleasure, that they are not innately sexual beings, that someone else turns on this switch and makes them sexual, and all of this jeopardizes our ability to consent. And of course, for boys and men, it means that they are pressured to being, into being sexual simply for the sake of being sexually active. They are made to feel badly or less masculine if they want an emotional connection or want to wait and their sexual orientation is questioned or maligned if they don't fit into that macho package. And of course, the part that troubles me now more than ever before is that in an effort to protect young people from each other, historically and even currently, we talk about boys as only wanting one thing, to get into someone's pants. And I am incredibly uncomfortable making the assumption or allowing young people to assume that if you are a particular gender, you are innately predatory. People are not innately predatory. People become the grown-ups that we allow them to be. And if we talk about our expectations and allow people to have genuine feelings and take ownership of what they want and, and who they are, we do not get into these really ugly, messy situations. Because consent isn't just about one particular gender saying no. It's about understanding how and when to say yes and being comfortable with yes and also recognizing that we practice the language of consent all of the time. You know, when we ask if, you know, we can get a glass of water, we have to hear someone's answer. If we ask at home if, you know, we can borrow your brother's Xbox, we're asking for consent. And Consent is so very critical. It is a word that greatly impacts our health. And even in our medical practices, we should be talking about consent. When we go to look at someone's genitals to acknowledge why we're doing it and asking permission for doing it. Because the modeling shouldn't simply come from your peers. It should come from your medical professionals too. 
And then, of course, it would be remiss of me not to acknowledge that technology greatly impacts sexuality as well as sexual health. We use our technology to express our sexuality. And, of course, the problem today with, with the way young people use technology is that they don't recognize that there are long-term implications and repercussions for things that they do online. Um, Truth be told, I would hate to be a young person today because you're supposed to make mistakes as you grow up. And our young people today don't have the luxury of doing that because their phones allow them to be defined in this one moment of time in perpetuity. The idea that we have a term called sexting, this made up term that says, you know, that you're sending digital pictures, images, videos of some naked or sexual things to one another. Um, Look, we always did that. We always used whatever was available to express our sexuality without doing something. In the 90s, it was those 1-900 chat lines. In the 2000s, it was those, you know, AOL group chats. So it's not a surprise that they do, that they will express themselves this way. The problem is they don't understand the long-term implications of it. And then, of course, there is pornography. Our kids have the ability, not that they all do, but there is certainly more access to pornography than ever before. And what we should be doing is acknowledging that pornography is a medium that's designed to elicit a response, but it is not designed to educate. It's not designed to model what sex actually looks like, what sexual health practices or negotiation of behaviors looks like. Um, it is simply another form of media that doesn't present the whole picture. But it is important to remember that your patients, especially your adolescent ones, probably have heard things and are probably going to ask you questions about sexual function based on what they're assuming to be accurate in pornography. Now, understanding contraceptive effectiveness is really key to this whole picture, right? Because it isn't just about how to take care of our emotional health and our relationships. It's also what we do to make sure that we stay safe sexually, that we protect and manage our reproductive systems, and avoid to the best of our ability contracting a sexually transmitted infection. One of the challenges with the contraceptive technology effectiveness chart is that we hold hormonal contraceptives up to the same set of standards that we do condoms and other barriers. Still to this day, and I am a tremendous condom advocate, condoms are the only things that offer protection against both STIs, HIV, as well as pregnancy. When we talk about those charts that we hang on in our offices and you see typical use decline for condoms, it's because typical use includes non-use. Mm. So think about that for a second. If someone misses one birth control pill, it's fairly negligible that the, the impact is fairly negligible, especially if they take one right away or take two the next day. What happens if you have a sec, an unprotected sexual encounter without a condom? Well, if you don't use a condom during unprotected vaginal intercourse, you can get pregnant. So, when you think about it, we're really comparing apples to oranges. And our patients oftentimes do not understand that that chart is very nuanced. They also think that when we talk about those numbers and those percentages, that those percentages are out of 100%. Instead of explaining that contraceptive effectiveness is measured by over the course of a year, 
how many out of 100 couples will experience a pregnancy? So that's not out of 100 sex acts. That's out of 100 couples having sex over an entire year. So those numbers change dramatically. So if you are going to hang those effectiveness charts on your office walls, please be prepared to talk about the nuances and what they really mean because they are super confusing to young people. The sad stats are that young people are still disproportionately impacted by sexually transmitted infections. And according to the CDC, as well as the American Sexual Health Association, half of STIs occur in young people, even though they're just over a quarter of the sexually active population. Um, we do not give our young people the tools to make good informed choices about their sexual and reproductive health. We can do a much better job at it. And one of the things we know is that when we give them the tools, when we give them access to information and services, and we encourage them to use those tools and services, they can and they will make good decisions. The kids are really all right if we give them the tools and the confidence to make good decisions in their lives. So in closing, we don't just have an opportunity. We have a responsibility to raise sexually healthy young people. We are indeed sexual beings throughout our lives from birth to death, and we can make it a really healthy and wonderful part of our lives, no matter what our relationship statuses are and no matter who our partners are. If there is anything that I'm certain of, it's that we don't just have an opportunity to raise a new generation of sexually healthy people, we have a responsibility to do it. So go out and do it. Thank you so much.